You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Steve Serbo. I'm the lead pastor here, if you're new here and questioning that. We say this every week. It's important that we know who we are, what our values are, why we exist. We are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and we try to strive in that identity uh, in four values, that we would practice love with everyone always, that we would give more than makes sense, that we would chase after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and that we would anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. That's who we hope to be. That's who we pray to be. If you want to know more about us, I'm always available after service. You can go to our website, check out our statement of faith, or even go to our information desk. When you came in, you got that bulletin on the bottom of it. It's a connection card. We'd love to get to know you if you're new here. Um, obviously, you know, uh, we've changed rhythm here. There's lots of more people in here, and there's lots of new people in here. And so I just take this time to remind you, like, when you come in here, we got to account for that. So try to move inwards to the aisleways so we can account for people coming in here later. Sorry for you late folks to call you out, okay? A couple things that I want to go over on the back of, of the, the, the connection card, and announcement-wise, is that our midweeks have just kicked up. There's still time for, to sign up for those things, and you can find a roster of those things at our information desk. Our Sunday groups are alive and active as well. We've given over 150 books of Job to study together in our groups. That's amazing. And so just so you know, you're welcome to join those at any time. There, there's not a season for entrance and exits. Well, hopefully never for exits. But you always are welcome to join a Sunday group no matter what season you're in. And then lastly, just want to make uh, you aware, I, this winter has been very mild, but we, we have an inclement weather plan available just in case something would happen on a Wednesday or Sunday so you know where to find what's going on at, at church if we've delayed or, well, do we delay? Would it be weird to have a two-hour delay <laughs> at church? We may think about that. I think that would be fun. We would feel like a kid again. Oh, we got a two-hour delay. Oh, anyways. Well, let's head into Job this week. We are in our fourth week. Uh, If you're just jumping in or maybe you've missed a couple weeks, uh, we have walked through this beautiful ancient piece of literature that speaks about this very prosperous man named Job, uh, just an upright man as as the word records that he's blameless. He turns away from evil. He, as I said in the first week, is prosperity's poster boy. And then we see this man named Joe become the object of the conversation in a cosmic throne room where Satan comes to God and God brings up Job and Satan says, the only reason that Job worships worships you and fears you is because you prosper him and if you would take away your protection and your prosperity, he would curse you to his face. And so God says, go. Go. And Satan brings great tragedy and suffering in Job's life. Messenger after messenger after messenger coming to Job and saying, your possessions have been taken, your people have been killed. Your positions have been removed. His family is killed. And that's not it. 
Then we see Satan attacking Job as a person, sores all over his body. The word records the picture of Job in the ashes of his life with a broken piece of pottery scraping his festering wounds. And into that situation come three friends who, seeing the magnitude of the suffering of Job, are moved to silence and mourning. And they sit with him for seven days. And after seven days of silence, Job's words come out. And he laments his whole life. He's not wanting to die. He just wishes that God never made the day that he was born. It is unfathomable to him to live a life where God's presence and God's favor is not in it. And he is questioning why everything is happening. And so that's where we walk in in week four. This has been an interesting week. I don't know if you are like me. I'm begrudgingly preparing my heart for the upcoming election season. I don't know if your heart has gotten to that place yet. Uh, I can just see that things is about to get ugly. Uh, commercials and attack ads and vicious slander just going to be coming out, it's just maybe more than we've seen in our life. And I, I say the word prepare because we do, lovers of God, we need to prepare our hearts or we will be taken away in the same rhetoric and division that is in this world. We prepare our hearts by reading and meditating and praying on the scriptures, on God. We serve a God that is not earthly bound, but we have a king that is in heaven that we don't have to fear or worry or have anxiety because our Father's kingdom is higher, deeper, wider than any earthly kingdom that we could ever find here, that we are to live as citizens of heaven first. That's where we belong. Not to say that we're not good citizens or we're not involved with politics, but our lens is always with God to live by his morals, his ethics, his values here on earth. And so this last week we've seen for only the third time in American history a president acquitted in an impeachment trial. And then we saw a caucus, the very first caucus. What is a caucus, by the way? It's just a term. I, I, I read it. I have no idea what it means. But it was a disaster. Candidates gathered in Iowa on Monday, expecting results to, to know good or bad, but they didn't get those results until Thursday evening, which would have been okay if it's 1920. But it's 2020. And people got all J.G. Wentworth, if you know that commercial. It's my money and I need it now. They just, <laughs> I want my election. Give me those results. What appears to have happened is there is a just massive failure of the whole system where backups of backups failed. It seems the Democratic Party had made this app that would have made things simpler and easier to report the results of the election, but they did not account for the coding errors nor the lack of training in their volunteers, nor the fact that they did not test this new app to much great depths. And so it was chaos all over the place. And then the backup to that app, their phone systems, it didn't work. And so they were left to count the ballots by hand as if it was 1920. And so here's what we can learn from Iowa. Here's what we can learn from Iowa. Sometimes in life, systems fail. Despite our best intentions and our most earnest efforts, systems fail. Sometimes we can put eggs in a basket and watch that basket get crushed. And grander than that is sometimes that we can develop systems and logic around relationships. Systems that we understand love 
and God. And then our theology crashes into our reality and we are left ill-prepared to deal with an experience that does not match my theology. And we panic that what I see, what I feel, what I'm experiencing does not come under my umbrella of what I believe to be true about God. This is where we walk into our text this week. Our comforting friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, men who went out of their way to comfort this man named Job. But when we turn the page from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we see these once silent men who mourned with Job triggered into accusation. They are triggered by the lament that Job brings forth in chapter 3, a lament that does not fit their sensibilities in their belief system in God, a lament that does not reek of the sort of remorse or humility before God that they believe is necessary of someone in Job's situation. To them, it is obvious that Job is the cause of his tragedy. Obvious. He has committed some sort of cosmic injustice or sin, and they're triggered by Job's lament that defends his blamelessness. As we turn to chapter 4, after this epic lament by Job, where Job asks God to wipe out his existence in a world where God's favor and presence is not in his life, his friends can't take it anymore. And so Eliphaz is the first of the friends to talk. We're not going to read all of the 10 chapters that we have for this week to your relief, but we are going to look at an overview of what these three friends are saying, and we're going to group them all together and make observations about these three friends, and then we're going to turn and we're going to look at Job. So Eliphaz pretty quickly sets the tone for his lecture to Job in the beginning of Job 5. In Job 5... Eliphaz says this in verses 5 through 7. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards. Eliphaz is saying, Job, look, your troubles did not just magically appear. Punishment in Eliphaz's viewpoint is not part of the natural process of life. But it is the outworking of people's inward sin. Tragedy does not find people at random. And so in essence, Eliphaz is saying, just quit this whole blameless thing. Knock it off. It's not true. And then he turns the temperature up in chapter 5. Eliphaz says these words in in verse 8. He says, as for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Job, if I were you, Although I have never walked in your situation nor your shoes, no, I, although I have never experienced the kind of tragedy in your life, if I were you, this is what I would do. What a terrible phrase to say to somebody who just lost everything. You're doing it wrong. Let me tell you how to do this. In this moment, we watch a person walk into a situation and uphold themselves superior to the sufferer that's in front of them. Eliphaz has severed all ties to the empathy train. He has set his agenda here. You're wrong, I'm right, and you need to get with the program. 
And he's wrong. He's wrong. There is never a situation for you and I who are believers in Christ where we will ever enter a season of somebody's life in a position of supremacy. There is never a moment or second in our life where we will ever be deemed better than somebody or ever deemed to be worse than somebody. On our journey of faith, as we rub shoulders with people in our lives, it will be just as much about the procurement of truth as it will be about the profession of that truth. We must take as much time to sit with people and, as the Bible says, be quick to listen and slow to speak so we understand and are informed that we would pray and wrestle in comfort. We spend as much time there, if not more, than we do professing the truth to fix people's predicaments, perspectives, and situations. Paul speaks a godly truth in the book of Romans that calls us to weep with those who weep. Eliphaz has galvanized himself in his rightness and Job's wrongness. He has deemed himself to be superior, and it's a great, great error. And then we meet a guy named Bildad, who I'm hoping will be the next trend in American baby names. I know a few of you who are pregnant, and I'm just saying it's worth a conversation. Bildad sets the tone right from the start. In his first utterance in chapter 8, verse 2, he says, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth will be a great wind. To the response that Job has to Eliphaz in chapter 6 and 7, a response that is agonizing over Job's situation, and now is agonizing over the treachery of his friends and their words, Bildad the Great, which is what I'm going to call him, says, Are you still talking? Are you still talking, you windbag? This is the the cool insult of the day, it seems like, in the book of Job, uh, to call each other windbags. These four friends will call each other that on multiple occasions. Maybe that will make an appearance in your home today uh, as well. Bildad goes in Job 8, verses 3 and 4. He even elevates this. This is horrible. He says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. Do you hear what he just said? This is the point of no return in that relationship. Bildad is insinuating that Job's children were all killed because they deserved it. Bildad has in his confusion and chaos of his systems not being able to account for what he sees. He has grown angry. And now he has let his words blind him and he is using them as knives to penetrate his friend. We know as lovers of Christ that in the New Testament we are called to deal with each other with gentleness and respect and love. Look, we all face frustrations in our relationships but we are compelled by the love of God to step away that we may utter things like this. Sure, there is forgiveness, but those words can never be taken back. And if we can't speak to people with love and gentleness, we are to remove our situation, ourselves from the situation until we can. Bildad shows no restraint. And then he, in the next few verses, he's upholding the logic of Eliphaz. 
In chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, he says, Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet, in fl- while yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Bildad says, just as the papyrus and the reeds die without water, so will the hope diminish of those who forget God. His accusation is that Job has forgotten God, and that is the root of his struggle. And then we fast forward to Zophar, who is just as prodigious in his pride, but Zophar goes beyond seeing Job's circumstances as fair compensation for his sins that he thinks that he has committed in front of God. He takes it a step further in Job 11. Zophar says, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he wouldn't tell you, that in that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Zophar believes that God has been merciful to Job, despite his aimless babble, that Job deserves even more than the tragedy that has befallen upon him. He would later go on in verse 12 to call Job stupid in reference. And so look, last week we focused heavily on two and three. And quickly we elevated the goodness in these friends of sitting in silence and mourning with their friend Job. There was a lot to esteem, but after these last 10 chapters, and I think the old saying is true, isn't it, that who would have enemies if you had friends like this? The only redeemable thing that we can say about Job's friend here is that at least they said it to his face. At least they said it to his face. In the ashes of Job's life, all they're concerned about is making their systems match their experience, and they can't think outside of the absolutes that govern their lives. They have no room for complexity and mystery inside their system. And so let's look at what these men's lives are governed by, their absolutes. There's three absolutes that I think that we see present in in these men. Absolute number one is that God is holy. God is absolutely holy, Number two is that God is absolutely in control. And number three is that God is absolutely fair and just. These are the systems in which they operate. And because of these things, they develop truth. Because God is holy, because God is in control, because God is just and fair, therefore, they make these rules. God must always punish the wicked and must always bless those who are righteous, good, God wouldn't be holy in charge and just and fair if he did not. They create the second therefore. Therefore, if that's true, if I suffer, it means that I have sinned and I'm being punished for my sin. And lastly, and we won't talk about this much in the book of Job, their absolutes and their understanding of those absolutes create that if I'm happy and content, I must be good. And so this is what they operate off of. Now let's throw those absolutes back up on the board. When we look at this, what's wrong with that? Can we look at those 
absolutes and say, well, that system seems to be set up poorly. Where's the misplaced belief? Where's the flaw? Is it not that God is holy? Is the flaw that God isn't in control? Is it the belief that God is always just and fair? Where do we see the error? This is the system that will eventually fail them over the course of the next 38 chapters. But what we will see is is that it isn't in the absolutes that we find the failure, but rather in the human applications of those absolutes. We cannot read Scripture and not believe that God is absolutely holy. And we cannot read Scripture and not believe that God is absolutely in control. And we cannot read Scripture and not believe that God is good, just, and fair. Those are undeniably true and right. The issue is how we in this world predict how those things will be worked out on this earth, as well as believing what we believe to be true about the nature of God. It could be said about these friends that their words are dangerous because they're almost true. They're almost true. In fact, Paul quotes Eliphaz in his wisdom in 1 Corinthians 3. He he says, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Eliphaz says that in chapter 5. These are smart men. They're wise men. But in being somewhat right, they prove to be unhelpful and unchristlike. These friends have massive holes in their theology. Massive blind spots, and I want to look at those blind spots today. They're for our benefit. These are the blind spots that we see in these three friends. Number one, this is they have no room for Satan in their theology. These men have zero understanding of a cosmic adversary. They have a theology that's built that says that God is good and evil is strictly limited to a human phenomenon. We have the benefit of walking through Job 1 and 2 and knowing the cosmic interaction between God and Satan. We see the interaction of two forces, not equal, but two forces, good and bad, light and dark, God and Satan. We see that there's a spiritual element, a spiritual nature to evil that God will and can use to leverage on this earth, not as a means of punishment, but that his glory would be known in our hearts and our minds and all the world around us. Job's friends have no room for this in their theology. And it is a massive hurdle. The other thing that's a blind spot is that they have no idea of waiting. Cosmic justice is instantaneous. If you're good, you get the cookie. If you're bad, you get punished. It's a version of toddler justice. That God looks at us as some sort of toddler that needs to reward our good behavior instantly. And then everybody who's a cosmic wrongdoer needs to go into the naughty spot. It's a simplify to say that God gives the cookie to those who are good. And God punishes those who are bad. Now look, it's obvious that the Bible speaks well to the principle that you reap what you sow, meaning that you get out of life what you put into life. That is true. In the end, there'll be no margin of error in that. You will either know Christ or not. But it's not how these friends believe it. To sow implies growing, and to grow implies harvesting. 
God will harvest some days. In scripture, Jesus teaches a parable that talks about this earth as a field in which the wheat and the weeds grow together. And someday God will come along and harvest that whole field, separating the wheat and the weeds. Someday growing will end. But thanks be to Christ in his grace is that in our sowing and our growing that there's always room to cultivate. There's always room by grace for newness in our lives. These men have no room for that. They have no room for an image of a God who is long-suffering in his patience, patiently withholding wrath and judgment with the desire out of his love that all would come to know his name. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have created a cosmic slot machine that when you put in goodness, you get sevens every time, and when you put in badness, you get punishment. There is no margin of error. And then lastly, there is no cross. And that may seem like, look, I get this Old Testament. We haven't got to Jesus yet. Certainly, they would not have wind of this sort of theology yet. But when we talk about cross, what we're talking about is that Job's friends have no room for innocent people to suffer. They have no room for an innocent person to suffer. In fact, Eliphaz says in chapter 4, who that was innocent ever perished. But yet we know that after the fall in Genesis that we read about, God has been working a plan to bring the most blameless, innocent, sinless person of Christ to suffer and die to reprieve the guilt and the sin of the world. Job foreshadows the cost of grace. That Jesus would come as the most innocent person in the world to suffer, and that suffering would be necessary and required for the cost of grace, the bridge that brings God's people back to themselves. And so here they are, those three holes, no Satan, no waiting, and no cross. And it works itself out in the way that they treat their friend. It manifests itself out, as we would say. And how they treat their friends. And what we see out of Job's friends in its manifestation is that there's no sympathy, there is no grace, and there's no love. Their view of God is very industrial. If you've ever worked in a factory, you know that each product has a production line, and each production line has a product. They know each other. Simply put, if you work at a factory that produces spark plugs, you're not going to find Dalmatians at the end of the line. Jim, we made a, we made a dog! You're not going to see that. There is predictability, steps, a process that can be seen and known, and oversight is available. In production, in industry, there is no room for complexity there is no room for mystery. That is evil. It's inefficient. These friends are absent of a faith in an unseen God, absent of a hope in an unfulfilled promise, and a longing for an unseen future. They are consumed by predictability and sight, and the virtues of faith and hope and love have been boiled down into moralism and lecture. Maybe you've met somebody in your life whose faith has been more about moralism and lecture, where people are the sum of their actions. 
that you get what you deserve, good or bad. And so look, here's the reality. These friends still exist today. Their wisdom still exists today. And it's in us. It's in us. It's in us when we see horrific situations like school shootings, and we say things like, that's what happens when you take prayer out of school. It's in us when we look at the drug dealer dead on the street and we say, got what he deserved. Or that we see a child who struggles in school and causes trouble and we label them worthless. This wisdom is in us as a mom when we look at other moms and we shame them to our friends for the way that they're raising their children. We are all guilty of this. I am guilty of this. I am not better than anyone. And it's not a product of our absolutes. There is truth There is black and white. We defend and uphold who God is and what he has said and what he has called us to. But we put ourselves in a very dangerous place when we become the authority on how God must and will operate on earth in every situation. When we don't account for brokenness and environment and even sanctification, meaning God moving his people to a more complete image of himself that you and I are in different seasons, that God is moving me towards him as much as he is moving you towards him, and we're in different seasons and different places. It does not account for that. It's a dangerous place that we put ourselves in when in our belief of being right, we desire to make it known to the world rather than being Christ. And conversely, it's a dangerous place when we compel within us a belief that if things are wrong, then I am a bad person, and God hates me. There is much to have conversations about in the weeks ahead as we continue in the conversations of these three friends. Their interaction will be for our benefit today as believers in this world, as God's instruments living in his kingdom today by his values and his worth and his ethics in his morals in his heart. When we see each other and we're concerned more about being right than we are about being Christ, we're in a very dangerous place. And so let's turn to Job. You know, in all that we see, Job remains consistent in his belief that he's done nothing wrong. He believes that he's blameless. Which, let's be honest, if you're reading this, it's irritating. It's a little irritating if you love God It's irritating to watch him defend his blamelessness because you and I who love God know that even in our best goodness, we're not good enough for God. But yet Job is not here that we would question his reality and his arguments to God. Job is in front of us that we would wrestle with a world that doesn't operate the way that we think it ought to. Job remains steadfast in his belief that he's blameless, that he's done nothing wrong, and he's more and more convinced that the best step for him is to take his complaint to God himself. He wants a date with God in the heavenly courtrooms to defend himself. He thinks that's the best way to clear it up. And he, and I love it, he is sarcastic with his friends when they come at him. My favorite is in Job 12, 2. Job says to his friends, he's responding to Bildad the Great. He says, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. 
What he's saying is sarcastically that, oh, you fools must have all the wisdom. In our world, well, we'll be in trouble because when you die, it's going to be crazy. You think that you know everything. But what I want to see today in Job's responses, in this early round, this first round of three debates between Job and his friends, there are some things that I want us to notice. That surely Job questions God's justice, he questions God's purposes, but he remains intensely loyal, loyal to God. In Job 9, we find this. I'm just going to read it out loud. It's not going to be on the screen. Job says, truly I know it is so. He's saying this to Bildad. Surely I know that is so. But how can a man be in right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, who overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea. Job looks at Bildad and says, I know what you're saying about God is true. It's just not all true. I think that it's important that we see in all of Job's struggles and in his honesty with God, he never, ever devalues the supremacy and the sovereignty of God, nor does he devalue the destruction of sin in the human life. He prays, speaks to God, show me my iniquity, show me my sin. And the reason that this sticks out to me is I think that there are many of us that can get the impression in our struggles that I must be Job. That we are suffering for some cosmic reason that is unknown to us. And look, certainly there are people in here that I have sat with that this reality is true. And it makes teaching these passages that stir up grief so hard. But for most of us and many of us, who struggle. It is not for unknown reasons, but because we, unlike Job, have devalued the problem of sin in our life and underestimated the power and the patience of God. It is an extremely helpful place to be, to look at your heart, to look at your life, and make sure that they are aligning with the Word and the Spirit of God to make sure that our wisdom is humbled compared to God's wisdom in our life, to do that before lamenting our struggles. There are many whose life is on fire simply because they refuse to confess loving themselves and their wisdom more than loving God and all of his. Let us be careful about putting ourselves in Job's situation. No one is Job. There are many who experience a suffering like his, certainly. But any, many, many others will simply out of their own choosing. Job always holds a high value of God and his wisdom. So much so that we see this powerful verse in Job 13. And Job says, though he slay me, I will hope 
in him. Job says this in the midst of his longing to be in the heavenly courtroom with God, to argue his case. And in Job's belief system and his theology, which is our belief system as well, is that God is so cosmically beautiful and loving and glorious that a person in his presence would be obliterated. Job is willing to risk it all because God is the only one that he hopes in. Though you slay me, yet I will hope in him. Man, what a hope for us as believers to pray that God would grant me this kind of faith, that in the midst of my ups and downs and my the goods and bads in the midst of my suffering that I would see God so supremely awesome and sufficient and beautiful and loving that I would understand that I would combust if I were in the presence of it. And then in light of that, that he would be the only one that I would hope in and that I would trust in. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And then to take it one step further in light of the cross of Christ who suffered as an innocent man on the cross bearing a torture that is unfathomable to us. A suffering that produced the greatest glory and good that humanity has ever received. That we would look at Christ and we would get our eyes off the microscope of our moment of suffering And know that the word says that God works for the good of all those who called according to his purpose. And that goodness may not look like my goodness. But there is goodness that comes out of suffering. That one day every tree will be wiped away. In the presence of God we will know fully that we would hope in an unseen God. And long for an unknown future that we get our eyes up and that we could say, though you slay me, I will worship you. Because I believe, I believe that there's a greater hope beyond this. So Job's 10 chapters here, 4 through 14, speaks to us to be people that never put systems over others, that we prioritize people over systems It's not to say that we don't speak truth and that in our suffering that we don't devalue God, that we don't devalue sin and that in all things that we would see the cosmic size and beauty and love of God and that would be all that we would hope in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom today. We thank you for these stumbling friends who think that they have it all together, but in their folly, Lord, we learn great wisdom. Your word comes to us fresh today. Help us to see where we fall short, Lord. Help us to pray and confess our need for you. Lord, help us to be people who aren't caught up in knowing every predictable scenario that our faith, hope, and love would boil down to moralism and lecture. 
But Lord, we would be concerned as much as professing truth as we are with procuring truth in every situation. That we would understand and listen and be informed and comfort and pray with those who suffer. That we would weep with those who weep. That we would never put ourselves in a position of support, superiority. Humble us today, Father. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord.